Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. When we left off at the last episode, Dr. Bowen had just left with instructions to telegraph Emma and get her back home. Officer Allen had followed close behind Dr. Bowen after seeing the corpse in the sitting room and confirming that the front door was locked. Just before he left, Dr. Bowen had said to Lizzie, by the way, Lizzie, where's your stepmother? And Lizzie had told Dr. Bowen the same thing that she had told Mrs. Churchill a few minutes before, and that she had told Bridget minutes before 11 a.m., and that she had told her father at quarter of 11. Mrs. Borden got a note. Somebody's sick. I don't know who it is. I don't know where she went. I don't know when she'll be back. And that's all I can tell you. But shortly after Dr. Bowen and Mr. Allen have left, and while Charles Sawyer is standing at the screen door, making sure that nobody, no unauthorized person comes in, the four women are sitting or standing in the kitchen. It's hard to know exactly how clearly they were thinking, but it appears that Bridget and Mrs. Churchill and Lizzie were thinking somewhat clearly. Lizzie was thinking clearly enough to ask Dr. Bowen to send her sister a telegram to give the address and then to say, word it carefully so that the elderly host is not unduly upset. That indicates she's thinking pretty clearly. She's thinking clearly enough to say the same story about the note over and over. And to the extent that she has been asked, where were you? She's telling a pretty consistent story that she'd been out in the yard and in the barn. And why was she in the barn? She was in the barn because she was looking for a piece of iron or irons or a piece of tin, and it had something to do with fixing a screen. And she had told that story already, I think, a couple of times, once to Dr. Bowen and once to Mrs. Churchill, and maybe to Bridget as well. So she's being pretty consistent, and she seems pretty coherent, and she's telling the same story about the note. She hasn't said anything about trying to find Mrs. Borden. Why, why should she? Mrs. Borden is out tending to some sick person or sick family. And Mrs. Borden obviously hasn't come back yet. She's given no indication that Mrs. Borden may have come back. And yet, when Bridget says to her, two minutes after Dr. Bowen has left, we're probably at 11.25 a.m. at this point, Miss Lizzie can you tell me where Mrs. Whitehead lives? I bet that's where Mrs. Borden went. Now, Mrs. Whitehead is Mrs. Borden's beloved younger half-sister, who is about Lizzie's age, who emotionally not only plays the role of younger half-sister to Mrs. Borden, but also plays the role of surrogate daughter. And in response to that question, Lizzie goes, no, Bridget, no, don't go to Mrs. Whitehead's. I'm almost positive I heard Mrs. Borden come back in. Will somebody go look for her? Either Bridget or Mrs. Churchill or both also say that Lizzie went even further and reported a belief or a suspicion that Mrs. Borden had not just come in but had gone upstairs. So let's stop for a second and think about this. Two minutes ago, she told Dr. Bowen about the note. Five minutes before that, she told Mrs. Churchill about the note. When did she hear Mrs. Borden come back in? From the time that Mrs. Churchill came back from the livery stable, around 11.13 or 11.14 a.m., Lizzie had not been alone. Dr. Bowen had come, Bridget had returned, Alice Russell had shown up, 
Sawyer had come, Alan had come. Somebody had been with Lizzie ever since Mrs. Churchill returned from her brief trip across the street to try to get a doctor. When could she have heard Mrs. Borden come back in? And we can rely on Bridget and Mrs. Churchill. Say what you want to about them, but neither of them really had a motive to lie about Lizzie, to try to get her unfairly, unjustly convicted. Even though Bridget was loyal to Mrs. Borden, her testimony overall and the information that she gave overall in this case was in many respects favorable to Lizzie. Some of it was very damaging, but some of it was favorable. It's not like she went out of her way to paint the facts in a way that would incriminate Lizzie. She did not appear to be biased. She appeared to be telling the truth. And the fact that both she and Mrs. Churchill tell the same story tends to support my belief that Lizzie said these things. I thought I heard, I'm almost positive I heard Mrs. Borden come back in. I think she's upstairs. Won't you go look for her? If Mrs. Borden had come back in, it had to be during those very brief times that Bridget was out of the house and Mrs. Churchill was out. So it would be from the time the alarm was raised at 10 after 11 until about quarter after 11, those five minutes, because Dr. Bowen arrived at 11.15 and Mrs. Churchill had already returned and was with Lizzie. Lizzie had not mentioned that to anybody up to that point. Why? Why wouldn't she have said to somebody? Why wouldn't she have said to Mrs. Churchill as soon as she came back, I thought I heard somebody come in? She certainly didn't turn to anybody after Mrs. Churchill returned and all these other people start returning to the house, coming to the house. At no point did she say, hush, everybody. I just heard a noise. Did you hear that? I think it's Mrs. Borden. No, never. And certainly if she'd heard Mrs. Borden come in and someone was present with her, Mrs. Churchill, Alice, Dr. Bowen, Bridget, she certainly would have mentioned that. She would have said, did you just hear that? So clearly she's talking about the time when she was alone in the house. Now she's been at the back door the whole time. From the time she raises the alarm until Mrs. Churchill comes back, she's at the back door. So nobody's come in the back door. She would have seen them. Not only would she have heard the person come in the back door, she would, have, she would have had to step aside for that person. So if she's talking about somebody coming in, she's talking about somebody coming in the front door. And Mrs. Churchill would know that if Lizzie believed Mrs. Borden was upstairs or if there was any reason to think Mrs. Borden was upstairs, it would have had to be up the front stairs because Lizzie has been standing right by the back stairs the whole time. Mrs. Churchill and Bridget have already been up the back stairs. They were up the back stairs around five minutes earlier, just before Dr. Bowen left, because they had to go up and get a sheet to cover Mr. Borden's body. Nobody was in the Borden's bedroom at that time, and they locked the door. Here's a really important point about this house and about the case. There were no hallways on the first floor or the second floor. This is particularly important with regard to the second floor. In order to get from one end of the house to the other, if you come up the back stairs and want to get to the front stairs, or you come up the front stairs and want to get to the back stairs on the second floor, you have to go through two bedrooms, Lizzie's bedroom and Mr. and Mrs. Borden's bedroom. There's no other way around it. And those two bedrooms, although they shared a door, there was a door that led into the Borden's bedroom. It was locked on both sides. The Bordens had it locked on their side. Lizzie had it locked on her side. 
and somebody had a piece of furniture up against the door. And I can't remember whether it was Lizzie who had done it or Mr. and Mrs. Borden. If somebody had gone up the front stairs, they would still be in the front of the house. They would not have walked back through a hallway to the back of the house. So when Lizzie said this, nobody had time to think this through the way I'm thinking it through, the way you're thinking it through. The day had been so shocking and confusing already that nobody stopped and said, what's going on here? This doesn't make sense. Why did you just tell Dr. Bowen she'd gone off with a note and you're now telling us actually she's come back in? What, what are you doing here? Nobody said to Lizzie, wait a second, are you telling us that you thought your stepmother came back in? We don't know if the murderer is still in the house. For all we know, there is a murderer in the house somewhere. And you didn't shout, Mrs. Borden, is that you? Is that what you're telling us, Lizzie? You're telling us you heard somebody come in through the front door. You're almost positive. You think it was your stepmother and you didn't shout, Mrs. Borden, is that you? Why not? And if you didn't shout that because you thought the murderer might still be in the house, then why didn't you shout it and run out of the house? Why didn't you shout, Mrs. Borden, is that you? If it is, leave the house immediately. And then why didn't you run out of the house? If you did shout, Mrs. Borden, is that you? And you got no response, why didn't you run out of the house? That would mean that it's not Mrs. Borden. It's someone else is in the house. And that's not good. There's nobody else that should be in the house. Mr. Borden's dead. Bridget's out of the house. And if it's not Mrs. Borden and it's not Emma, it's an intruder. But you didn't do any of those things. You kept this to yourself while you're telling people that she's out on a sick call. It makes absolutely no sense. And Lizzie is sufficiently clear in her head and in her actions that she's giving detailed instructions to Dr. Bowen about sending a telegram to Emma, send it to such and such an address, but don't word it too graphically because Emma's staying with an elderly host and she might be really upset, so word it carefully. And yet you don't have the presence of mind to say, by the way, I think my stepmother came home. And you don't raise that when the police arrive. Officer Allen is a Fall River police officer. If anybody is trained to deal with homicidal maniacs, it would be the police. And even if Officer Allen is 40 years old and hasn't worked his way up as a beat cop and spent 20 years wrestling people into handcuffs, he's still a police officer. Why wouldn't you have mentioned it when he was there? That's his job. His job is to go look for murderers. That's not Bridget's job. That's not Mrs. Churchill's job. You don't mention it to the police, and now they're gone. How do you explain that? How do you make sense of that in a way that is not incriminating? that does not reflect badly on Lizzie. So, unbelievably, Bridget offers to go up if someone will go with her. Again, Mrs. Churchill volunteers. So they go from the kitchen into the dining room. They cut through the sitting room because you, you cannot get from the back of the house to the front hall and the front stairs unless you cut through the sitting room. They don't look at the dead body. They don't look at the body under the sheet. They go straight to the front hall, and then they start creeping up the stairs, one behind the other, Bridget going first. And when they get to the eye level of the floor, of the second floor, they're halfway up the stairs. They can look to the left, and they see that the guest bedroom door is open, and they can both see under the bed. There is a single bed in the guest bedroom, and under the bed, but on the other side of the bed, 
is a body lying prone, face down. Mrs. Churchill gives a shriek or a groan or a muffled cry and turns and runs downstairs. And when she gets back into the kitchen, somebody sees her face, sees her expression and says, is there another body? And she nods. Bridget actually goes up the stairs into the guest bedroom, walks to the bed or to the end of the bed or around the bed, sees that it is in fact Mrs. Borden and comes back down. So now we've found Mrs. Borden's body. Nobody picks up on the things I've told you. Nobody says to Lizzie, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. There's so much confusion. There's so much shock. People are are simply trying to absorb the fact that there have been two murders in the home and that this is all so senseless and it's all so unbelievable. A daytime weekday murder in the home with people under the same roof, meaning Bridget and particularly Lizzie, on a busy street, it's hard to comprehend. And within minutes of this discovery, an officer, a police officer comes. His name is Doherty. So does Dr. Bowen. Dr. Bowen returns. And I think Bowen returns just ahead of Doherty. Doherty is the next cop to arrive. Bowen has come back. Bowen has been told there's a body, Mrs. Borden, second floor, guest bedroom. Dr. Bone goes up, confirms she's dead, comes back down, and Doherty's in the house. And he tells Doherty, and Doherty goes, and he looks at both bodies, and then he leaves the house, and he goes off on a run to the undertakers down the street, and he calls the police chief, Marshal Hilliard, from the undertakers, and he says, they're both dead. It's not just Mr. Borden. We've got a double murder. I didn't take a close look at Mrs. Borden. But I can tell you, it's horrifying. Mr. Borden's body is the most horrifying, gruesome thing I've ever seen in my career as a police officer. You've got to get people up here and you've got to do it now. And the chief, believe it or not, rather than send Doherty back to the house to secure the scene, tells him to come down to the station so that he can debrief the marshal. What we have at the Borden house at that point is Dr. Bowen, Mrs. Churchill, Lizzie, Alice Russell, Bridget, and Mr. Sawyer, and no police except for a guy named Wixon. And let me talk about him quickly. Wixon was a deputy sheriff who apparently was on friendly terms with Marshal Hilliard. The sheriff's office is not the same thing as the Fall River Police. But Marshall Hilliard had been a police officer for 15 years or more, and Wixon had been in the sheriff's department for quite a while, and these guys knew each other. And so it just so happened that on Thursday, August 4th, a little before 11 a.m., Wixon was either off duty or he had a little time to kill, and he had stopped by the police station, the central police station, to have a chat with the marshal, just to stop in and talk shop or gossip. And he was there when the call came at 11.15, informing the marshal that there'd been a murder at the Borden house. But Wixon didn't get that news immediately. The marshal had been out of his office to take the call, and he had gone and spoken to Alan and sent Alan off. And apparently, Hilliard either didn't tell Wixon what it was about, or he simply said there's some commotion up at the Borden house. He hadn't said anything specific. But then Alan comes back at 11.25, out of breath, and says to Hilliard, it's awful. Mr. Borden, he's been murdered. His face is unrecognizable. It's, it's horrifying. And at that point, Wixon, 
on his own initiative, decides to go up to the Borden home and see what he can do to help. He doesn't ask Hilliard for his okay. It isn't clear Wixon even really has jurisdiction, but he goes up on his own right away. And as he's closing in on the Borden property, he's probably within a couple hundred yards of it. Doherty joins him. Doherty and Wixon apparently know each other, even though they're not the same police force. Rather than Doherty telling Wixon, let's quickly make a plan. Let's think really quickly here. Doherty just runs into the house and lets Wixon do his own thing. And so what Wixon does is poke around the yard. Wixon walks around the yard. He looks for murder weapons. He looks to see if anybody's dropped an axe or a hatchet. And I assume he knows that's what he's looking for because Alan came back and said, Mr. Borden has been, his face has been pulverized with probably a hatchet or an axe or a meat cleaver. And so Wixon's looking for that. He's looking for bloody clothes. He's looking for some obvious clues. He doesn't go into the barn, I don't believe. He certainly doesn't go up into the loft of the barn. But after poking around the yard, he sees that there's a big pile of lumber at the back of the yard in the Borden yard stacked up against this fence. And it's a board fence. It's a fence that is about six feet high, solid boards. You can't see through it. And the boards are all held in place side by side by side. These series of two by fours that are nailed about four or five feet off the ground, horizontal to the ground. And Wixon refers to them in his testimony as stringers. And I think you can picture this. You know what the inside of a fence looks like. There are these two by fours or there's some kind of wood that goes across the inside of the fence that holds the boards in place. So Wixon gets up on the pile of boards and he starts walking along this stringer and he's keeping himself in place and he's sort of balancing by holding, moving his hands along this long string of barbed wire above the fence. So that is what he's holding on to as he walks along the stringer. The reason he even got up on the fence to look over was when he was in the Borden yard looking around, he saw a hat. He saw a hat bobbing up and down. So he knows there's a man on the other side of the fence. He can tell from the hat that there's somebody underneath it. And that's why he gets up onto the fence and he finds his way over the fence. He gets over the fence without ripping his clothes, without cutting himself. And he gets down on either a pile of lumber or a pile of junk on the other side of the Borden fence. And he goes up and he essentially taps the man on the shoulder. The man under the hat is sawing wood with his back turned pretty much to the Borden yard at an angle, not not 100% turned to it, but turned away for the most part. And Wixon has to come up and essentially tap him on the shoulder. And so Wixon does not stay in the yard. Wixon doesn't go into the house. He doesn't stay in the yard. And when Doherty runs to make the phone call, he doesn't think to say to Wixon, stay here and keep the public from coming onto the property. It never occurs to Doherty to do that. And it doesn't occur to Wixon to stay and do that. Because once Wixon is over the fence, and he finds he cannot talk to the man sawing the wood because that person only speaks French. And there's this kind of comedy of errors where some other employees on the far end of the yard come towards the Borden property and they talk to Wixon and they say, this guy's French, he doesn't speak English. And Wixon talks to these other employees and they say they haven't seen anything. And then rather than go back into the Borden yard to see if he can be of use, Wixon looks at his watch or he figures out somehow that it's time for him to go home and have his lunch. So Wixon takes a lunch break and goes home. 
and then he doesn't come back until 1.30 or 2 in the afternoon. And by that point, the damage has been done in terms of the crime scene. When Doherty runs off to make the phone call and Wixon climbs the fence and doesn't come back, the property is left unguarded by any police. All we have is Sawyer, who's standing at the door. And word has gotten out in Fall River. Word gets out very fast. You had those four men, three, four, five men across the street at the livery stable. Mrs. Churchill tells them about the murders or about Mr. Borden's murder. She tells them around 12 minutes after 11. So word has already gotten out. We're now at 11.35. 20, almost 25 minutes have passed. And two reporters have been told and sent up because Cunningham, the news dealer, called the two daily newspapers and said, send up reporters. So we've got two reporters on their way. And they're arriving just around the time that Doherty is running off. And so are some other civilians. Two of them end up playing a crucial role in the defense because they claim to get into the barn and up into the loft. And that turns out to be crucial evidence. And we'll talk about that possibly in the next episode, but we'll talk about it fairly soon. It's hard to understand why it didn't occur to anybody, to Officer Allen, to Doherty, to Wixon, to the marshal, to secure the crime scene. Hilliard knew at 11.35 a.m. when he got the phone call from Doherty. Doherty is calling from a funeral parlor right down the street from the Borden home. It's 11.35 or thereabouts. And he's calling and telling Hilliard, we have a double murder. We have apparently an axe murderer on the loose who's killed two elderly people in their home in broad daylight on a busy street. And one of those people happens to be a well-known businessman in the city, a rich guy. This is going to be all over the papers. We're going to be under tremendous pressure. Let's figure this out. Let's immediately go into emergency management mode. It never occurs to Hilliard that the public is going to be headed, that people from the community are going to be headed over to the property and start climbing all over the place, trampling the grass talking their way into the house, peering through the windows, getting into the barn. It never, apparently never occurs to Hilliard that this is what is going to happen or might happen. And he provides virtually no leadership at this point. I will acknowledge right now, there was no DNA evidence. There wasn't anything remotely similar to the kind of forensics, knowledge, material expertise, specialization that we have now. DNA evidence didn't exist. Fingerprint evidence wasn't in use. Medical science did not even know there was such a thing as blood groups, blood types. That wasn't discovered until after 1900. I will grant you all that. So I will cut the police slack in that sense, but not secure a crime scene? What if there is a murder weapon in the grass and you've got the public, you're getting dozens, scores, a couple hundred people on the property rooting around? walking off with souvenirs, contaminating evidence, picking things up and saying, hey, look at this. You might have people who are dropping evidence, who are their handkerchiefs fall out of their pockets or a tie pin falls off or whatever. And then you're off on some wild goose chase. Oh, look at this. Look at these initials. This must be the murderer. No, it was somebody that got onto the property that was just nosing around and this tie pin fell off and it happened to have his initials on it. It's unbelievable. It's shocking. It's incredible. And I have to say, based on my professional experience, two years as an assistant district attorney, 
36 years as a practicing attorney, much of that time defending criminal defendants, including all the speeding cases and the other traffic infractions and the misdemeanors and adding it all together, conservatively having tried 2,000 cases in my career, including some really serious cases, a murder case, three bank robbery cases, an arson case. I'm not sure I have ever seen a case that was this badly handled by the police, that was this incompetently, ineptly managed. I'm not saying that everything they did was wrong. Some of the things they did were perfectly competent, but the mistakes they made were mind-boggling. And we'll get into that. I'm going to finish up here, and we will continue with the day of the murders in the next episode. I hope you join me. I hope you've enjoyed this. I have. So, until next week, take care.